This week on the Eldritch Lawcast, we discuss how to bring your epic campaign to an end and should magic be regulated in your campaign setting. All that and more coming up now. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of your favourite Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing game podcast. That's right, we're back with the Eldritch Lawcast. My name is Ben Byrne here with Dale Kingsmill, Sean Merwin, and once again sitting in for James Hake is Logan Reese. Welcome back, Logan. Uh, Logan, do you have a favourite uh, module? I'd, I'd say, let's say 5th edition first, one that's been published in 5e, but you can expand it out from there if you want to. He put me on the spot, man. I can't pick my own. Uh, sure. I would, I, I would have to say uh, Tomb of Annihilation is probably one of the most interesting ones. Uh, okay. The one problem that I had when running it is that there are a lot of locations on the map that the game doesn't tell you ahead of time, but those aren't locations. You mm. have to make dungeons for them. So if the mm. party goes there, uh, that's a big problem. But I think the whole the background concept of it, the way that just the, the region functions and the unique systems and mechanics that they have set in play. And mm. then I really like the idea that there is just an auxiliary adventurer who is doing his own thing with his own quote-unquote party, and you can just run into him. I think it, a lot more adventurers could could benefit from just having NPCs who are kind of just as important as you. Yeah. Have you ever gotten to the end of Tomb of Annihilation? Not uh, by... I've read to the end of it, okay. but not by actually <laughs> running or playing in it. No. Yeah, it's... It is colloquially known, Omu, the city, like the, the, the kind of penultimate place where you go in that mm, yeah. uh, among my friends is known as where campaigns go to die um, because I've run sort of 18-month-long campaigns that would have been mm. two, three years by their end, but they get to Omu and then scheduling conflicts or whatever it happens to be just overtake. <laughs> uh, and I've never gotten past Omu itself. We've gotten into the city, never into the, the titular tomb itself. Next time you do it, just start there. It's probably a good idea. Yeah, maybe uh, uh, scrap the the rest of the exploration. The game does give you two options where, like, you know, you can start at base level or you can just start at, like, level five or seven and just beeline it there. Yeah, that's true. It's diverse. It's it's well done. Uh, Sean Merwin, do you have a favorite module? I really enjoyed Tyranny of Dragons, the one of the very first ones that they published. Uh, because I've run it the most, I've sort of smoothed out some of the rough edges that there's a part in the middle where they have to be the characters have to be caravan guards and that can drag mm -hmm. on a bit uh but i just i like the flow of the beginning and i love you need a strong start to a campaign i think and tyranny of dragons starts with you're traveling and in the distance you see dragons in this army attacking this town it doesn't get much more start strong than that yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Well, honestly, Fables has a really, really cool mm -hmm. and unique start that I like. Uh, yes. Yeah, that's uh, true. It, it, can I spoil it? I think, uh, I think James spoiled it uh, yeah. at some point, so I think just, go ahead. The, the party it. gets hunted and killed, like, immediately. <laughs> that's just the opener, is a lich shows up and just ends whatever adventure they were trying to have. Yep. Then it starts that's, from there. I thought that was really that's cool. What I, that's what I just finished running for my home group. And they were, they're in shock. They're in shock. It was, uh, it was interesting. <laughs> in a good way? I'm kind of curious to know. Because, like, when you speak yeah, of Tyranny of Dragons, the one, um, the, the 
criticism that I've heard of that in the past is that level one party adventurers or level one adventuring part, whatever. Anyway, they're level one and they're walking towards a village and there's a drag, like a full grown dragon just swooping down on the village and a lot of parties just go, let's go somewhere else. Like this does not seem like it's for us. How did the party take the the fables opening? They took it, uh, they were stunned. They were literally stunned. They set off a trap that killed one of them right away. And uh, <laughs> I didn't even get to the. <laughs> well, no, they, they got into the, they got into the place. There is a specific item that they're searching for, and it's trapped. Well, the character completely failed the the uh, investigation check to find the trap, failed the saving throw mm. for the trap, and it's it's a strong trap. It it could almost kill some first level characters if they make their save. So since sure. since that character died right away, I didn't want to languish with that character being dead and go through. So I just had the Lich show up. I had mm. different characters die in different horrific ways. Uh, so mm. it, it became a little bit of a, a joke while being very serious <laughs> in game became kind of funny outside of the game. And they didn't know quite what to do because I'm generally quite a serious DM. So they, they weren't sure what's going on. But then after I read what happened next, they were at least curious and that's where I ended it. So. Uh, Dale Kingsmill. I mean, I feel like I went into this in a great deal of detail uh, a couple weeks back, but I am really taken with Strixhaven. I really am. I know it's not like a full-on adventure adventure, but it's an adventure. Mm. It is. And I am just, I'm in love with so many of the ideas from Strixhaven. Really like it. Mm. It seems to be really divisive online. I hear a lot of opinions. Yeah, people either seem to love it or really dislike it. If you it, it makes some sense to me. It's it's you know heavily narrative. It's deliberately. It's such a different genre to basically any other event. Like like the idea of D and D five E modules that you can drop in and you can be like, yeah, you just finished Storm King's Thunder. Now we will do Tyranny of Dragons. You know that's. That is a big part of how the modules work mm. in uh, fifth edition and I guess other editions. But it, you know, Strixhaven, even though technically you can drop it in anywhere, it's not really something that you can drop into any game. It's sure. it's such a different vibe that I I think claiming that it can drop in is not necessarily uh, accurate. Um, but it is, you know, for people who are into that kind of, I, I mean, again, I want to be playing Pretty Little Liars. I want to be playing <laughs> Winx Club. I want to be playing Buffy the Vampires. I want that drama. I want that level of it. I love, I love the way that it ties in, you know, relationships with NPCs. I mean, there, like there are things that I would tweak. There's things that I would tweak with anything, mm. but, um, you know, I, I really love it. I understand why it's not for everyone, absolutely. But for me, it's like it was made for me. It's like it was a gift that they wrapped and gave to me for Christmas, and I'm so happy about it. Well, the reason I'm asking about modules is because we received an email um, back in December, so What's I yours? Did you say what yours was? Uh, well, I... I, I would oh, see it so hard. My, my favourite module, and I'm you so sorry. You always think you can get away without answering the question. I'm on it. 
I know. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Logan, because I you asked before yeah, right? if you could pick your own, and I'm about to this pick my own. Oh, you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I homebrewed a, a a campaign called War of the Ravens, was what I called it, because the idea was that the central conflict happened in a, a sort of medieval King's Landing style city that was just ravens everywhere, like it was kind of known as the city of ravens, um, and it was very. Uh, it was a lot of political intrigue, um, a lot of moral quandaries, um, and it ended, uh, to, to spoil it a little bit, with a TPK right in the climactic battle uh, against the, the BBEG, which was left the party completely stunned at the time. I think, uh, you know, and I've replayed it in my head a few times and they replayed it in their heads probably a collective million times. I think that we were safe in the way that, they kind of TPK'd themselves in the decisions they made during that combat. And it felt more like a, you know, the end of a tragedy, uh, like a Greek tragedy, rather than a anti-climax kind of um, abrupt ending. So it was quite quite suitable in the end. But I, it's the one that sticks in my head as the most memorable campaign that I've run. I think it's the one that my players were most invested in at any given time. Um, so... I'm going to cheat and say that. Although I do like Tomb of Annihilation as well. Um, That's funny. That's how my uh, largest campaign ended too. Online. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm Did not sure get... if, the, if the party actually came to the conclusion that it was their fault, but <laughs> felt very much like it. It's yeah, never the DM's I mean, fault. No, when I say that it was their fault, you know, I don't, I don't want to explain the... I don't want to spend the, the next 10 minutes explaining the, the, the intricacies, but the villain kind of was too good for them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was just like the tactical um, decisions they were making during combat. They just were they, they were making emotional decisions rather than strategic decisions. The cleric, instead of buffing and aiding the party, was just trying to do damage when he mm. could have been aiding uh, his fellow party members stay alive. Um, the... The, the mage who couldn't do damage to the, the BBEG should have been crowd controlling the minions, but they were having an emotional response where they were also just trying their best to, to blast damage, which wasn't as effective as it could have been. So it was sort of a culmination of um, poor strategic decisions made for emotional reasons, um, which probably added to the, the feeling of a Greek tragedy. The reason we're talking about modules today is because we've received an email from Victoria uh, as in the person, not as in the the uh, state. Um, and uh, we received this back in December. So I apologize, Victoria, it's taken us a while to get around to it. But basically Victoria said that uh, they want to DM um, to quickly read their email. They said, I always hear DMs are storytellers and I feel like this creates an expectation which makes me really frustrated. I want to run RPGs, but I'm no storyteller whatsoever. I don't want to make plots and character arcs and... Um, uh, and it really keeps me from ever wanting to try and run a game. Uh, I think an open table might be the solution. I love exploration and fun solutions and making voices. Uh, do you have any tips? And when reading this email, my first tip was possibly modules uh, might be the answer. But sorry, Dale, what were you going to say? I was going to say the great news, Victoria, is that uh, even a DM who wants to make plots and character arcs, you kind of can't. Uh <laughs> That's, that's the yeah. great news is like uh, you 
you know, when it comes to storytelling, like writing a story, you're like, mm, and yes, and then this will happen. And then you can't plan for any of that. It's really, sure. um, when we talk about it being a storytelling game, it's emergent storytelling. That is that your players will do things and you will react to them. And the story kind of builds itself um, in that way around the RNG of the dice. You're not telling a story, you're facilitating a story that's being told by everyone. So you don't need to be a storyteller. You need to be able to set up the players to tell the story. Yes. Sure. That was kind of going to be my comment, is that if you don't want to put together a story, but you still want to run this world, kind of let your players create the world before you even get started. Let them build these characters that have backgrounds that are related to things that they come up with and then you just kind of pull them together and just go by, fly by the seat of your pants with what they've written, and then the story just gets created around you playing the game, like, like they said. Absolutely. And I mean, it is a game of reaction and reaction, right? The players are reacting yes. to what you put in front of them, and then you're reacting to what the players do, and then it just keeps, it's a perpetual motion machine. It just keeps going from there. And Ben's suggestion yeah. of starting with a module is great and combines great with what Logan is saying. You know, you, you start with this module, you look at the character backstories you've been provided, and you go, oh, this part fits in there really well and you just slot it in and you don't have to come up with anything it just kind of you take the bits that are given to you and you slot them together yeah now the, the, go, open, Whoa! the open world uh idea often sounds better than it plays uh you know people like i want to play in a sandbox and then there, if there's nothing to react to people often have a hard time reacting so mm. there always needs to be some sort of structure. Uh, the structure mm. can, can be very basic. Uh, it can be, doesn't have to be greatly detailed, but there should be something, one or two things even, where this is what I'm putting in front of the players that they must react to. It could be as simple as there's a cat watching you from the shadows mm. from the alley. That's their prompt. Listen to what mm. they say. What do they think it mm. is? Maybe one of the things they say, that becomes what it is. Not, maybe not the first thing, are... but let them speculate four or five things and then pick one. Those are great puzzles. I love the idea. Obviously, it's, it puts a lot of pressure on the DM because you're literally thinking on your toes and you have to be very fast. But to introduce a puzzle that you don't have the solution to... And then when the party starts looking for solutions, they create them. Like you hear a voice in the distance of a hall and it's like, oh, was it, was it magic, fake, real? Was it, it, it's a million different things. And all the party wants to do is figure it out and they're going to try. Mm. And then you just say, oh, it works at whichever point you like. I do think that, you know, when you when you watch people play D&D on an actual play or you look at a module that's, you know, like one of the big beefy ones like Tomb of Annihilation, um, where it it seems to have this big overarching um, campaign and, and, you know, epic, almost operatic story behind it that every encounter is building on the next encounter to create this larger point, um, creates a bit of a false expectation that that's what D&D is or that's what D&D needs to be. Um, and it's not necessarily true. You know, you can play campaigns that are very monster of the week where you just flip open the monster grimoire, 
pick a monster and be like, I like this thing because it's got a, 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 a gut that, you know, it dunks adventurers into. Uh, I'll never get over the pot belly. I'm sorry, Sean. But it dunks adventurers <laughs> into uh, and then it eats them. Um, so I'm going to put that in the campaign. And then the next week it's a griffin. And then the next week it's a Madu. you know, like whatever it happens to be. It doesn't have to build on a, a larger, grander plot if storytelling isn't what you get out of the game. If it's, you know, almost more like a, um, I don't play that many MMOs. Uh, but that's my impression of what an MMO is, is just kind of going out and doing quests, you know, and there's kind of a story to it, but it's not the point of the game. It's more just Actually, and being you know engaged. Else? That brings up a really great point that we've kind of like danced around, but haven't said explicitly. The the story-based, narrative-based approach to D&D is very popular at the moment, but it's it is not the only mode of D&D. The mm. dungeon crawl, for mm. example, mm. is like the classic shape of a D&D game is it's it's not about the story it's about going and getting loot right like if stories aren't what you're interested in you don't have to run stories there are plenty of players who aren't there for that and like I said within those games you're still going to have these these emergent story elements that will come up just by virtue of it being yeah. a game of characters reacting to stuff um, but mm. yeah look at look into different you know, styles of play, West Marches, look into, yeah, dungeon crawling, all the, all this, and there's, there's if, other things. If you, if you want like a more direct and absolute answer, I think the way that you can completely cheat out of a story and just have a few sessions is just put the party in an arena battle. And then <laughs> oh, yes. in between the arena battles, just like let them hang out in the barracks and talk to each other between each fights. The story yeah. is minor, but it's personal and it's, easy for you you don't have to do anything at all just look at their numbers and put other numbers against them that's it yes. it's also good for, for creating those you know you can have arenas that you know here's the monster go fight it but maybe the arena's magical you know so if you mm. if you enjoy creating the puzzles as victoria i think mentioned you can create like themed arenas, you know, here they're fighting griffins. So there's no floor to this arena. It's all up in the air and like floating platforms or something. And now they're fighting. Stibbles actually has some of that. Yeah, that right. There you battle, go. Like, Pokemon arena. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now I'm thinking Smash Bros, Smash Bros arenas. Mm. Um, that was the, awesome. The other good thing uh, when you're talking about Dungeon Crawls, Dale, what that makes me think of is Tales from the Awning Portal. I think that's a really good resource if you're looking just to run dungeons. I run a dungeon from that. I think it was, no, nah, I can't remember the name of it. Um, because the I, Mad Mage is a good one too. Yeah, right. Know. There you go. Because mm -hmm. it's just all dungeon crawling, right? Like mm -hmm. it's just the, you go from one dungeon to the next to the next. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Very episodic. Ass assuming you pick that- up, uh, Pick up the book of layers uh, that we did for the Master Grimoire, right? Very short yeah. one for each that's level. Cool. And if you want to hook them together through with some narrative, you can. And if not, just run one uh, at first level, finish it, run the next one at second level. Mm. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Um, if you are picking up a module, what is our general approach to like running modules for people that you know haven't necessarily run a module before? They want to get into DMing, but they find that the modules are quite intimidating. You know, they look like massive textbooks. Uh, it looks like you need to do a lot of pre-reading before you can even start the campaign, which is not true. Um, what, uh, what are, what's our general advice for running modules? Treat it like a classroom. Just read a couple chapters and then play the session pertaining to those chapters. Relax your mind and then come back to it later with the next ones. Sure. 
don't overthink Colville's it any more than you need for, to. Um, yeah, Colville's advice for uh, is yeah, I have to go to someone else's advice because I don't roll, run modules enough. <laughs> um, is that if you're if you're playing like a real like adventure sort of storyline module, skip to the end and. <laughs> like read about the villain and like what the final thing is going to be and then go back to the start and do it a bit at a time like look mm, I like that a lot. so you kind That's of really have good. the context for the for the big picture and you That's can just do it just bite unintentionally chunks. how i wrote sunken isles actually we have like the introductory scenes and then immediately it hits you with the villains like by bi like bios their background what happened to them and why they're here and what they want to do like what their plan is and then you get to the rest of the story. That's uh, that's interesting because that's the same way that I wrote um, uh, Vault of the Living Flame was a module that I did sort of independently before I was working at Ghostfire. Mm. And the idea of that module was literally I knew what I wanted the final climactic encounter to be. I knew where I wanted the party to end. I had that scene very vividly in my head. And so it was like working backwards from there and being like, all right, well, how do I create a a story that leads up to this point um, and gets the party there. And that might, you know, you, you try to create the, and th this is inherent to running modules, right? If you're running the module, there is a forward momentum to the way that the campaign is going. It's not necessarily go anywhere, do anything. There's um, bounds, if not rails. Uh, yeah, that's interesting because that is the general and very specific divide between running, you know, improv D&D games or one shots and then writing a book or a story. Mm. With books and stories, you start at the end. You don't start at the beginning because it doesn't matter. You want the resolution and then you write backwards. Mm. So I guess if you're trying to tell a, a module story that already has an ending, it makes sense that you start research at the end. So mm. I, I do like that concept. That's an interesting overlap there. Yeah, and most, most published adventures will have a synopsis at the beginning. Hopefully that mm -hmm. synopsis will give you all the details that you need. You don't necessarily have to go to the end. It doesn't hurt to, uh, but hopefully that synopsis will give you the information that's vital for you as a new DM starting at the beginning. It is advantageous to, to read ahead a little bit. I agree with you, Logan. Like I, I, I've never read a module cover to cover. Um, I never necessarily read the areas that aren't going to be relevant to me because it's too much, you know? And also... This is a thing that's personal to me, but I'm an over-prepper. When I'm working from a module, I almost have to rewrite the module into my own shorthand so that I don't have to sit there with the book open on my lap is the way that I prefer to run. I also heavily homebrew. But the thing that did, this is just a, a small warning, is the thing that did catch me with Tomb of Annihilation specifically is there's a lot of things in the titular tomb that are referenced earlier in the adventure. And if you don't know what those things are, then it can kind of catch you a little mm -hmm. bit off guard or, or has the potential to catch you a little bit off guard once those things are found, if the, the seeds for them aren't necessarily set early on. So it's kind of like you don't need to know what's in every room in the, the dungeon at the end of the adventure. You don't need to read it all and absorb it all and have an intimate understanding of every you know level. But just kind of... And, and Tomb does this well, where at the start of the Tomb chapter, it kind of gives you an overview of the, the whole dungeon, I'm pretty sure. So you can just go read that bit so you get an idea of what's coming up uh, as the party move through. That's what I read. To get there. Um, <laughs> but yeah, do you, Dale, you don't use modules? You're not a module kind of person? I have used modules. It's not my go-to, but I have used modules. Uh, and I'm about to 
make a claim. I'm about to do that thing that Dale Again. does where she has an opinion and <laughs> states it very strongly. All right, um, here we go. Just, uh... Here's my problem with fifth edition modules as they currently exist. Yeah, shy away. <laughs> shy away. Um, don't look at the Ark of the Covenant. Um, there's this constant thing that keeps coming up, particularly with 5e D&D modules, that I think would be really tricky for someone who's who's running for the first time and, and isn't confident in what they're doing, is that so many of them go, and this goes from levels, you know, one to eight or whatever, you know, they, they pick their range of levels and they say, ah, yes, and, and it will cover, it, it's perfect for beginners. But they always have, like, the, the first three levels worth of you know, climbing, climbing the, the ladder, uh, of advancement is always just, you're in a sandbox, do what you want for three levels. Every time. It, not, not every time. There's like, there's a couple of, of exceptions, but so often they'll be like, and you are in water deep, just doing whatever for three levels. And then the adventure yeah. will start. Yeah. You're in Baldur's Gate doing whatever <laughs> for three levels. And then the adventure will start. And it drives me up the wall because for a new DM, that's a nightmare. You don't know what you, they're like, here's a bunch of NPCs and you know, they can choose whatever they want, but they're not, they're not giving you like guidelines to follow. And I think oh, that that's yeah. like, I'm not saying that railroading is the one. answer, but I am saying that maybe it gets a bad yeah. name. Sometimes, yeah. particularly yeah. with new DMs or new players, a railroad can be just a great guide to follow. Mm. Yeah, and I can railroading absolutely is a... back that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, because I run improv one shots every week, or I have stopped running some of them now, and I let other people run them. But it is so hard to go into them without a prompt. You need mm. like a paragraph to go off of before you start, because if you try and come up with it on the spot, infinite amounts of pressure just push you into not being creative at all. Mm. So yeah. Definitely, there needs to be direction. But you were going to say, Sean? A railroading gets a bad name because there's different kinds. A, a railroad adventure is just a linear adventure. What, what we talk about when we say railroading is a bad thing is when the DM does not let you make choices. Mm. So, yeah, no, you can't go to the blacksmith. You have to go to the sheriff because the sheriff is where it, the adventure says you have to go. That's railroading. Mm. Um, you know, linear adventures are great for new DMs because adventure modules are user manuals. Imagine trying to put together a car from a manual. And it just says, okay, you've got all your pieces. Go ahead and you know, put together the transmission without telling you what the transmission is, what pieces go into the transmission, or how it all fits together. And that's the problem that we have sometimes as adventure designers is we know how this game works. We just assume everyone can figure it out when they can't. That's why, yeah, why sometimes even intro adventures like box set adventures fail new DMs in that sense where they still make that assumption that somehow intrinsically, intuitively, the DM will know how combat works when they might not. Yeah. So it's obvious that new uh, experienced DMs will be put off by this hand-holding that takes place, but it still needs to happen for new DMs. That's why I think... Um... <clears throat> Pardon me. If I if I 
slightly change my answer from the top of the episode. Um, one module I have run is Lost Minds of Fandelva, but I have so heavily homebrewed it, I can't remember what is mine and what is from the module. So that's why I didn't think of it initially. But it, I think that it's been popular because I think that it does a good job generally of uh, introducing players to the concepts of D&D a little bit at a time in terms of like, here is an ambush that has happened. Now you are getting ambushed. And while that ambush can be potentially very deadly if the DM uh, is being merciless to his players, it it puts a combat right on the front of the game. So it's like, you know, the, the video game, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Tutorial. Tutorial. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's mm-hmm. like, here is a combat. This is a, a opportunity for the game master to teach the players how um, combat works. Now you're going through the, the woods to track down where the goblins came from, but there are traps along the way. So here is the DM's opportunity to teach the players how traps work. And it's two traps, one after the other. So it's like if they fall into the first one, maybe they're a little bit more prepared for the second one. <laughs> and if they overcome that, it's like, all right, great. Now you know how that functions. Now here's your opportunity to ambush because when you get to the goblin cave, the goblins aren't paying attention. So what do you want to do here? And then from there, yep. it it kind of butterflies out and becomes a bit more open as you go. Yeah. The only issue with that adventure, and it is good for what it does, it doesn't lead the characters from that initial ambush to where the people were taken. There's no prompt set before the players that, that this is the next thing you should do. Because it's it literally points you to the town before it points you to... It says if the players choose to track, they can. But sure. they don't really have... They don't. You don't see blood trails. You don't see. If only that thing. there was a rail of some kind to guide them. <laughs> exactly. If only, and that's why box text, while it's hated, is so important to adventures, sure. because you, as the adventure designer, can put in those very minute details that are actually huge clues. Yeah. The blood trail leads to the north, even though the road to the town is to the west. Mm. Uh. You know, you know that this cart belonged to your employer. Hmm. It's the employer's blood leading in this direction, <laughs> town this way. Because if you send those players off to town rather than off to the caves, now you're pushing the DM to do a whole other set of skills that they might not be ready for yet, which sure. is dealing with a town where there are seven other quests going on while their employer is off in the goblin's cave. Sure. So, right, it's the attention to detail to write an adventure that does what it needs to do, especially for new DMs, is very, very taxing. Mm. I actually go to the trouble of, even though I don't tend to run many modules, I write my own boxed text for myself Mm -hmm. because I don't trust myself. I know I will end up leaving something out that that is an important mm-hmm. element for, you know, just just giving your players the information. You can trust them to make decisions of their own. They don't have to do everything that you're you're wanting them to do, but giving them enough information like this is where the blood trail goes. It, it just they make a decision that is maybe different from what they would otherwise because you are their eyes in the world. They they will not pay attention to things that they can't see. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like that. 
Yep. Yeah, I agree. I do. I wouldn't have phrased it that way, but I suppose I do the same thing in terms of like writing in detail an introduction to an area for myself to read to the players and try to do it as offhand as possible so that it sounds natural um, so that I'm not reading. But I find that if I don't write it down, I miss a lot of details. And so if they go to an area I wasn't expecting them to go to, it doesn't have its little box text written yet. It's kind of like, oh, here is um, a village and there's, you know, multiple stories and, um, you know, it's it, it's all made of stone and there's some shopkeepers that are selling apples versus if I've managed to write it all out, it's like, you know, there are umbrellas and there's um, washing on lines strung between the buildings and it just helps tell a much more visceral or paint a much more visceral picture yeah. than um, going off the top of my head. So speaking of adventure prep, we did get an email or, or you know, starting and running campaigns. We got an email from uh, Gethin who comes from Wales um, oh. and uh, Gethin has asked two questions. I hope we get time today to answer both of them. But the first one particularly relevant to this conversation, um, which is around how to go about ending uh, grand long campaigns. Uh, they've been running a game on and off for nearly four years um, from level one currently to level 11, which for the record, I love that slow burn uh, yeah. leveling up. <laughs> I am conscious that we aren't too far away from the final confrontation with the BBEG. Do you guys have any advice, strategies, uh, fun ways to close out a campaign? That's been such an investment and such an amazing time for all the players involved. Gethin, just kill them. Just kill him during the final encounter. That's <laughs> yeah. That's what I do. But um, I, I think honestly, a victory lap is the most important thing when you're wrapping up a story about characters that matter. You need to go around and have each one of them have one amazing final scene, and then after the combat is over, spend maybe an hour and just let them all decide what they do afterwards. Mm. But yeah. definitely just. That spreading the spotlight evenly over everyone and letting them kind of realize this is who we've become after mm. everything that we've done and this is what we're capable of. If it's uh, <laughs> if anybody understands the reference, um, Fallout New Vegas. I think, in fact, I think all the the Bethesda Fallout games do this thing where it's kind of like an ending montage at the end of the game and it goes through a lot of the NPCs that you've met along the way. Sometimes you sit there going like, who was that guy? What did I do with them? Oh, yeah, that's right. Because uh, it's very detailed, but it is, I think, kind of what you're touching on, Logan, this idea that each player gets a, a sort of ending scene to, to yeah. say, you know, and he lived out or she, they lived out the rest of their days um, doing this. And it's also a good chance to talk about how the party actions, even before this final conflict, changed the world, you know? Yeah. Having run the same campaign for multiple different groups a couple of times, it's always fascinating to me to consider what the uh, world state is at the end of um, the campaign, where this group of uh, lycanthropes uh, were terrorizing a village, but they're actually misunderstood. Um, <laughs> and one campaign ended where they had taken over the village because the party were like, all right, well, if you give us soldiers, we'll give you this piece of land. One campaign ended where they had been exiled and, and driven off, and that led into, you know, consequences elsewhere. Um, so, yeah, just kind of getting a, a view of where the world state is at and how the players have impacted that. What, what meaning did their choices have uh, upon it? Mm -hmm. uh, Dale, what about you? What have you done to finish campaigns? 
I don't think I have, now that we're asking this question, I don't think I have ever had a campaign actually end. You know what I mean? They all just fizzle out because of scheduling conflicts and those things. We're always far too ambitious. We're always like, yeah, we'll play the whole way through rather than going, you know what, let's just play, you know, five levels or something. Yeah. So I I have no advice for this. Thank goodness I've never had to deal with it because what would I even do? I don't know. My favorite endings from from fiction would be rubbish in D&D. They're things like, you know, <laughs> Buffy. I mean, spoilers for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The final episode, you know, all this huge combat has happened and some of them have died and some of them have survived and they make it out. They just barely make it out by the skin of their teeth. And then at the end, someone says, what are we going to do next, Buffy? And she smiles and that's the end of the show, right? those sorts of things Uh, I love you know lock stock and two smoking barrels ending where they're hanging over the edge of a bridge you know I I don't think that the things I love in endings for fiction are things that can clearly translate to D&D maybe I'd go for like a K-drama approach K-dramas, they often defeat the bad guy sort of at the end of the second second last episode. And then the last episode gives you this this really nice chunk of time where you just spend it with the characters. You know, it's, it's a proper epilogue where it just mm, sort yeah. of unpacks the stuff that they've gone through and, and the things that they hope to do and mm. where they plan to go next. Maybe that would be good. <laughs> yeah, I think... Not necessarily, I actually think you could use that approach that you were talking about, the Buffy ending specifically. I think that not ending the campaign in the session, they defeat the BBEG. If they defeat the BBEG, especially towards the end of the session, coming back next week and playing an extra session as those characters to wrap up the the story <laughs> um, beats, I think is is a good idea to make it feel like it was, you know, feel like there's proper closure there. But if you're going to do the, like, BBEG is dead, what do we do now, wink, mm-hmm. what you could do, my, my way of approaching that would be, all right, now we're starting from level one, completely yes. new characters, but it's in the same world. So you That's, know yeah. what the, the old party went on to do by discovering that through playing the new campaign. That's what That'd most of cool. my GMs That'd have done. Cool. Uh, I, I really yeah. think we, that just... The ending of a game that I played recently called Everhood, where you're essentially um, the person tasked with killing a bunch of immortal people. And then at the very end, you have this final kind of victory lap fight with all of them again in the afterlife where they're just applauding you or thanking you. So I think running through all the major like non-player characters that they interacted with and seeing how they impacted their lives is also a really fun note to explore. But mm. continue with your thought. No, uh, I can't think i don't think i can add much that wasn't said that was all very intelligent uh endings are hard right that's why we get to the end of a seven season series a seven series episode you know (laughs) show and we hate it no matter what the ending is because it's the ending yeah Uh, so it's very hard to do uh but giving players who want that the time to talk about their characters is great uh, mm. what's one thing I like to do is if I know I'm going to be running something else is make the creation character creation for the new set of, uh, characters tie into the old characters. How are they related? How have they affected your new characters? We went from an acquisitions incorporated campaign to rhyme of the frost maiden where the acquisitions incorporated characters were the bosses and the underlings <laughs> then went off. 
to explore the the north uh yeah with all the baggage that was you know laid upon them by their their horrible bosses uh so you know that was sort of a fun way to phase one story into the next yeah, I definitely think that um, the, those victory lap endings or the grand finale scenes, they are like they feel really good, but they don't really convey the, a proper message of the fact that no story ever has an ending. It yeah. just keeps going. So I like the visiting, like, you know, going back and seeing everything that happened and then realizing that it's probably going to happen in a different facet very soon again. Yeah. And that's probably also cycle. why uh, I love Buffy those endings ending. yeah. that are like, mm-hmm. you know, what are we going to do? And you don't get an answer. The Bolivian army ending where you run out to face impossible odds and you don't see what happens because it really clearly acknowledges that <laughs> the story's not done. It, it's just mm-hmm. going to keep going. The end of Blake seven is another one. Mm, um, but I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe the way that I would love to in an ideal world, if it ever, if I ever reached the end of a <laughs> campaign, I would love to have a final session be not actually played. I would love it to just be the players sitting around and asking <laughs> yeah. each other questions about each other's characters, things that didn't get addressed or things that they want to know about what they plan to do next. Let it be really grounded in the players because then maybe that gives me the room to have the ending really just be like boom you cut off you don't know what's gonna you know and you don't have to plan that part of the ending it's just the players talking you just sit there and watch and smile and that's the easiest way to write anything best (laughs) yeah quick uh bit of advice just on on what dale said if this is relevant to you in terms of reaching an ending with a campaign and and it fizzling out I mean, this is this is just what I, I've found to be successful in the past is um, chapter or bookending your chapters. Uh, so if your plan is to play a big, long campaign that goes for years and years and years and the plan is to never stop until, you know, whatever happens, heat death of the Schedule. universe, <laughs> um, scheduling inevitably. Um, I've always found what's successful is playing campaigns in chapters almost where... You know, I played The Lost Minds of Fandelva first, which is designed, I think, to go from level one to five. And that, if we had never played after that campaign, even though the story wasn't complete, complete, that would have been satisfying because we told a whole complete story and the villain was defeated. Then I think we went from levels like five to seven with a different uh, uh, campaign that went for maybe six months, same characters. But if we had finished at the end of that, it would have been equally satisfying because we had defeated evil, you know, a second time. Then we did levels eight to 11 or something like that, I think. And so kind of, you know, if the scope of your campaign is massive, finding good bookends can help achieve a a sense of um, closure, even if scheduling conflicts break up halfway through the the next chapter. And the other thing is you'll get good at endings because you'll have practice. That's really good advice. That's the the Futurama approach where we're probably going to get canceled right now. Let's make a good ending (laughs) if we do. And then they come back Mm -hmm. again. Yeah, exactly. Um, Gethin had a second question, which uh, I can't even find a segue for. I'm so sorry, Gethin. (laughs) But I think it's a really good question um, uh, to quickly hit on it. I love this question. I'm not sure if others will. Uh, the second question, I'd love to hear about how you would ha- uh, handle magically restricted campaign settings. Now, to clarify, they're not talking about low magic where magic doesn't necessarily exist, uh, but uh, a kingdom slash empire 
realm place where magic is illegal uh, or heavily, uh, you know, there's a lot of suspicion surrounding it where magic is uh, controlled. Um, and so being an arcane caster is, uh, you know, something that has to be considered when you're creating your characters because you can't necessarily walk around and just throw magic around. How do you make that fun? How do you make that um, narratively satisfying? Uh, the examples that Gethin uses are Vasselheim uh, from Critical Role, where divine magic is seen as safe and controlled, but arcane magic is seen as sinful and chaotic. Um, my number one piece of advice, Gethin, allow me to introduce you to the Arcanist Inquisition. Um <sighs> This is this is basically the the case in uh, Grim Hollow, uh, the Ghostfire Gaming's main campaign setting, where magic uh, in many not not everywhere within the campaign world, but in many places, if magic isn't completely outlawed, it is heavily uh, controlled, regulated. regulated. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you. Where to the point where you need to be licensed to be a mage, but more so than that your license might stipulate the specific spells and specific circumstances under which you can cast those spells that you are allowed to engage with. Um, and so that's that's kind of where you start with, with, with the narrative lore. And then the Arcanist Inquisition, which are a, an offshoot branch of a religious order, basically are, are hunting spellcasters and mages and people who come into contact with um, dangerous magic items. And they can kind of play as both a protagonist or antagonistic um, a faction for your party to to become part of or fight against. Um, that's the narrative setup for Grim Hollow, using it as an example because I'm not familiar with Vasselheim. What are I suppose our, our our advice on making that fun, making that engaging for players, making it not feel like it sucks for the spellcasters because the minute they crack out a spell, they're going to be hunted for the rest of their days. I I think that that should be the narrative focus is that you can't just whip out spells. I think my, my personal opinion, I don't have a, a strong thought on this, but make it a noir campaign where you are either hunting people who are doing illegal spell casting, or you are doing like heists with these illegal spells. The focus should be on the fact that what you're doing or what you're chasing is illegal because if it's an auxiliary story trait, people aren't going to have fun. Sure. Okay. Yeah, so uh, something that is occasionally true of my setting, uh, I first things first, I always start with a conversation with people, right? Because if mm. this is something that they're not interested in playing, then there's no point in doing it. Um, but in my setting, as it exists in my head, um, there are different reactions to different spellcasters, right? Like wizards have respect because they have had to study that there is a safety to that they've they've gone through all the process of learning to use magic safely versus sorcerers are just handed it and they don't know what's really going on there they just use it willy-nilly and so people don't really trust sorcerers in my setting so if i have a player who wants to play a sorcerer and likes that idea it becomes a spotlight for them. It becomes um, something that is used to make them and their character feel special and unique mm. because they in the party, it, even though, yes, ostensibly it is like, oh, people will not trust you. And if you use magic openly, the guard might come after you, things like that. Like it does seem like a drag, but if you treat it as like, you've chosen this element of drama for your character. So let's like 
use that. Mm, um, if your player doesn't like that stuff, then don't run it, you know? Um, it's, it, or maybe you can run it, but they can choose a different class. You, you have to align those expectations. Um, and then I like to also do things like sort of feed into that with, um, you know, if there's a paladin in the party, you say, hey, um, it might be cool if in your backstory at some point you were in this town when a sorcerer just like broke magic like like they cracked the fabric of magic and there was this huge explosion and like you've seen the destruction that can be caused when when someone who isn't trained to use magic just does it anyway you know they're, they're playing with forces that they don't understand so then you get a little bit of inter-party drama you know little little bits and pieces just you know i i think that once you treat it as a are you interested in this cool let's do it then you have the freedom to kind of use that as as a thing to bring attention to that character from time to time. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be the focus all the time, but you can just be like, hey, you've gone into this town and people are looking at you funny. There's a bounty for sorcerers, you know? Um, yeah. yeah, I really like that aspect yeah, of it. I, I, think I it love, be... yeah. I, I love so, the I'm idea so that Logan had a really, that's okay, really leaning into it. Uh, you have to be careful about how granular you make the laws and the rules, because you know if you say, well, the the society likes arcane, but or likes divine, but not arcane, uh, then you begin to get all sorts of questions. Well, I'm a monk, and I have this subclass that lets me cast, uh, like lets me cast spells, even though I'm using key points, not magic. How how am I seen? Is that arcane? Is that divine? Is that something in between? Is the stable owner going to report me if he sees me fall off the roof but not take any damage because I put my hand on the side? <laughs> now, okay, so I'm slow falling. Is that magic? Is it not? Uh, am I going to be burned at the stake for being a witch for doing that? What, you know, so you have to be very careful with the world that you build because it becomes big questions about what is magic, what is not. Sort of yeah. going back to last week, right? Is is the yeah. plant that I summon a magic or not? I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, so it's it's a you definitely get buy in from the players for sure, yeah. but be careful with the granularity of your world's reality. Mm. I think yeah, a major part of it is acknowledging that restrictions that you're putting on the party are supposed to be fought against. And I think it would be fun to play like a Red Dead Redemption 2 story style where you are in a family of rogue spellcasters who say, no, we're going to cast our magic. And they are actively being hunted by by these regulations, by these rules. So it, it becomes kind of a cat and mouse between your party who are inevitably going to be amazing and these mundane people who are trying to regulate everything. Mm. And it's got the Dragon Age effect too, right? So in in yeah. Vegas, in the Dragon Age world, it is it is a big element that spellcasters are really heavily regulated within this uh, in this setting. And you at the beginning of the game are told that, and then you get to make a choice of what class you play, right? You're told about the difference, and and that's that's it. You can present your players with this campaign document that says, "Hey, here's some stuff that's included." Magic is heavily restricted and policed. And then the players get to decide whether that is something that they want to deal with or not. You know, mm. um, so I don't think, I, I think 
as long as you're going about it in a way that is, you know, very communicative, you are telling yes. them all the stuff, they have all the information they need, then I wouldn't worry too much about it being something that's a total drag for the players because they chose it. They chose it. Sure. They want to engage with that. They want to push against it. They want it to push back against them. Mm-hmm. I think that conversation and in the... Again, it, it Sorry, comes down ahead, to the detail of... of uh, you can say, if you as the DM say, all right, you can cast magic even in front of people, but you have a chance of being spotted. And the player's like, oh, cool. And then that turns into a real drag when you have five levels of adventures in the city where everything they do is in public and they're making performance <laughs> checks or, That's true. or That's true. you know, stealth checks every time they cast a spell. Okay, so that's one more die roll you're adding every round to a combat. Yeah. And if they get caught, then every time they fail that check, which maybe they fail every time, uh, they're, uh, you know, the, the guards come running. It turns into a real drag. So it, be, be yeah. clear up front with that sort of thing, too. Now, it's I really a spotlight, love, not a floodlight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that, that comment on it where it, you're playing the game to have fun. So these restrictions are supposed to augment the fun, not restrict it. Mm-hmm. So when you put them in narratively... It's supposed to be important and really exciting and cool when you like do get caught and you have to run. Mm. So to make sure that expectation is communicated and to build situations and scenarios where the players can maybe sneak around into a back alley and cast something on an item and then pretend that it's magic and sell it for more, <laughs> like counterfeiting and stuff. So it should definitely be a, a major part of just the way that the game goes instead of mm. just this absolute rule for no reason yeah and consider the the um the in-world tension of it as well right like the idea that i mean if we go back to the thetis dragon age example it's not just oh yes there are templars and they you know come and they exert their influence over the spellcasters and it's all negative there's also the side of things that are really supportive of the mages who who are pushing for mage rights you know you want to have two sides to any Mm. anything like this where it's like a, a sort of a political element of your game. You want there to be uh, give and take and push and pull so that it's not always bad all the time. Maybe maybe there's like an underground uh, resistance movement that is like, hey, we're going to give you stuff because you're this, you know, mover and shaker and you happen to be a magic user. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's, it's worth considering um, all the elements that come from this in-world restriction. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, um, you know, having specific city-states or regions or empires, realms um, in Grim Hollow, it would be somewhere like Castanella, where the Arcanist Inquisition come from, or the Burak Empire, where magic is exists and is licensed and they train mages, but it is that heavily kind of regulated thing. And having mages in those areas, you give the party a goal. Get to you know, uh, Chanel or perhaps in Astoria, magic is more accepted. So maybe your goal becomes to kind of, you know, smuggle magic users uh, out of danger and into areas where they feel more accepted and it can I become a, a central part of the, the narrative. I think touching on Sean, Sean said something earlier, I think it is important to provide safe spaces to cast magic, throw them in a dungeon every couple of sessions where they can just let loose and fireball up the place and not give a crap so that they don't feel like they're constantly looking over their shoulders. But I think it's also, you know, having that conversation beforehand, 
Restricting magic is a good way to make uh, players aware of their actions. I might have told this story before, I can't remember, but I had a campaign where some players went into a, a morgue because they there was a murder mystery and they wanted to talk to one of the bodies and cast um, Speak With Dead. And the way that I described the spell was, you know, this is a necromantic spell. The candles go low and turn like a deep red and the, the corpse, you know, kind of seizes and rasps out the words and the um, morgue keeper, mortician, if you will, um, morgue person, um, freaks out because this body, they, they walk work around corpses, but this body has never spoken before. And so they freak out, run out into the street, and the party were surprised, um, which I thought was a, a, a good narrative moment. I probably didn't communicate well enough with them that this would happen, and so they were a bit more surprised than perhaps they should have been. They get out into the street, and there's a bunch of commoners who are really suspicious of magic um and they're like carrying you know short swords and axes and clubs and things and they're like right we're gonna you know teach you magic users a lesson <laughs> and so the party cut sick and start casting like shatter which un destabilizes the stonework in one of the buildings and uh you know scorching ray goes off and somebody gets a uh, you know dominate personed um and so it's this massive display of magic that in that specific circumstance is of course going to to provoke a reaction you know yeah, it you're, becomes you're... more of an anomaly than an ability yeah it's, yeah it's scary it's like a nightmare to see someone cast these spells when you know that people either can't or shouldn't yeah yeah well even if even if they should even if magic is commonly you know known about you're you're letting off like weapons of i don't want to say mass yeah. destruction <laughs> but significant <laughs> weapons you know are just like blasting the the village apart and people are probably you know it's like that superhero um uh, thing where uh, like the they boys? fight in oh. <laughs> uh, well yeah no the boys is is an example of like um um you know kind of uh passing out the, this narrative dissonance but this idea that you know in in man of steel superman is throwing zod through buildings and and there are you know in theory people in those buildings so if the party are just like letting fireballs off in the middle of the village um surely there's going to be some collateral damage so i suppose this oh. You know, I'm going to make... go watch Invincible again after this yeah. podcast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I don't know, just making players aware that, like, even in a regular campaign, it's not okay to necessarily just let off these spells in the middle of a crowded area, um, which I think... One of the funniest things I've ever witnessed was a, a low-level adventure where the, I was watching the table. The DM was running this adventure where the peasants are... They don't like strangers and they don't like magic hmm. and they don't speak common. They only speak their native home awesome. language and the adventurers come in and they're looking for directions to the castle. And of course they can't speak to this person. So what's the first thing they do? They cast comprehend languages. <laughs> you have to touch the person to speak with them. Oh. So they're chasing this peasant <laughs> around with a glowing hand, trying just to try to get directions from him. And you know, Immediately, you're getting across this idea of <laughs> you better be careful here with with magic. Yeah. Uh, but going back to first edition D and D, barbarians refused to use magic. Right. In AD and D, and they they distrusted and disliked wizards. So this this was a class feature of a barbarian. Hmm. You want to talk about throwing together a, a problem right from the yeah. start. 
So tables around the country, around the world, were ruined right away when, ooh, this new book came out. I can play a barbarian. Oh, we hate magic users. <laughs> well, you know, Steve over here is playing a magic user. You're a barbarian. And just right from the start, there was conflict, chaos, and people attacking each other we, in we character. We still kind of have that with like paladins and warlocks. That's what right? I was going to say. Yeah, the yeah. original yeah, paladin-warlock dispute. <laughs> yeah. This was a little more stringent, though. This was... Like you will attack wizards on site. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it, it was not uh, not well not thought kosher. out. Let's put it yeah. That way. yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much, Gethin, for both of those questions uh, that you sent in, and Victoria as well. If you want to ask us a question, give us a prompt, something to discuss, uh, you can email podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. Or you can drop a comment down below if you're watching this on YouTube. If you want to keep the conversation going with us personally, our uh, social handles are just below our names uh, in the video feed. And I will also throw links to those in the comments as a few people in the uh, show notes, I should say, as a few people have requested. Um, I've been Ben Byrne here with Dale Kingsmill, Sean Merwin and Logan Reese. And until next week, uh, we will catch you then. <laughs>